on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. I think that it feeds the imagination. It feeds the ability of the individual uh, to be ardently educated in whatever your area of interest is and to really know what you're talking about. If you want to build a bridge, you have to have some engineering principles. I think everybody would agree with that. Don't build a suspension bridge unless you have a grasp of engineering. Bad idea. Now, what someone's personal spirituality is, is not a matter of life and death necessarily, as a, as a good suspension bridge is. But I do think that the individual will do, I think it expands creativity and imagination and productiveness and communication skills to be ardently educated, including self-educated. But I do think that spirituality is an act of self-discovery. It's self-inquiry. And and I, I don't think that we can or ought to, or that it's possible to set guardrails or boundaries on the injunctive know thyself. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and I'm very excited to welcome Mitch Horowitz back to the podcast to discuss his latest book, Modern Occultism. In a wide-ranging conversation, Mitch talks about why older isn't necessarily better, why we may have entered a new renaissance informed by esoteric ideas, the different ways that Gnosticism speaks to our cultural moment, and the history of parapsychology and its importance to the emerging paradigm. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Mitch Horowitz is a historian of alternative spirituality and one of today's most literate voices of esoterica, mysticism, and the occult. Mitch is the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, Daydream Believer, The Miracle Club, and Uncertain Places. He has discussed alternative spirituality on CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline NBC, NPR's All Things Considered, CNN, Vox Netflix's Explained, Vice News, Seasons 1 and 2 of AMC Shudder's Cursed Film, and Coast to Coast AM. He has bylines in the New York Times, Time, Political, Salon, and The Wall Street Journal. Mitch hosted, co-wrote, and produced a feature documentary about the occult classic, The Kabbalion, directed by Emmy nominee Ronnie Thomas and shot on location in Egypt. Mitch joins me today to discuss his latest book, Modern Occultism, History, Theory, and Practice. Mitch, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, man. Good to be here. Yeah, it's really uh, exciting to be able to speak with you again, and it's always an honor. It's always an honor. So there are a few things I want to discuss about your book. And first, I just want to say congratulations on the latest book. I continue to be amazed by your output, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book, but it prompted a couple of questions. Actually, it prompted a lot of questions, so I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you about them. And one of the initial kind of questions that I have, and this is, maybe it's the philosopher in me that always wants to be clear about definitions, but I was 
wanting to ask you about what you mean by occultism, because I think there's a lot of faulty ideas about what that might be. But specifically, I'm also curious about the connection, the differences between what you're referring to as the occult or this occult tradition and the new age. Oh, that's that's a great question. Simply put, occultism is a term that emerged from the Renaissance. It's rooted in Latin, meaning hidden or secret. And it was a way in which Renaissance philosophers, clerics, religious scholars, artists began to refer to the rediscovered spirituality of the pre-Christian world, Egypt, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of this had vanished during what we used to call the Dark Ages. Now we use the more cleaned up term, the early medieval ages. And, and it's better. It's a better term because Dark Ages left the implication that nothing was going on. And of course, plenty was going on, including the early building of the cathedrals. But the term did have a certain integrity in that it was also a period not only of economic, cultural devastation, uh, throughout a great deal of Western Europe, but it was also a period in which the ancient world vanished. It's extraordinary. It's almost without precedent in human history in a certain sense. It's a very unusual part of our identity as Westerners. We had a, we have a schismatic religious tradition where we had polytheistic, seasonally-based, nature-based, initiatory faiths traversing the biblical lands, Europe, Northern Africa, Persia, and to a very great extent, all of this was wiped out with the advent of Christianity and then later the advent of Islam. And so occultism is in a sense a revivalist project to identify and to some extent, to some extent, reconstruct fragments of the ancient spiritualities that once dominated Western life and that vanished in late antiquity and into uh, the early Middle Ages, early medieval period. New Age, as I see it, <clears throat> is a contemporary movement. Uh, I define New Age as a culture of radically ecumenical therapeutic spirituality. And uh, some people derisively call it cafeteria religion. <laughs> I... I embrace the term cafeteria religion as I do many other terms that are supposed to be insults. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that in fact, it's just an accelerated expression of what we as a human species have been doing for millennia, which is clipping and pasting from one another's religion to see what works, what satisfies. I was just reading a wonderful article this morning in an Israeli newspaper called Haaretz about how some of Judaism's earliest conceptions of the satanic came out of the Persian faith of Zoroastrianism, which makes perfect sense because in relatively late in the uh, era before the death of Christ, uh, Persia ruled the roost in the Middle East. And Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest continuously practiced faiths on earth. So it makes perfect sense that the the Hebrews and, and and others in the area borrowed concepts from Zoroastrianism. Rome itself borrowed concepts from Zoroastrianism. 
the story of religion is a story of clipping and pasting. It's it, it, it's how the sausages get made. <laughs> religion has always been a syncretic enterprise. But in our age, in the 20th and 21st centuries, this process accelerates wildly. And we see some of that in the new age where it looks like a, well, and it is a clipping and pasting of different faiths, ideas. There's also a very strong self-help quality to it. So it's 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 in some ways a, a it's a borrowing from everything. And people rush to call it corrupt and soft-headed and trendy and fickle and Sure, all that can be defended, but there's also a lot of, in my estimation, a lot of positive things that come out of New Age culture. The recovery movements, various self-help movements. I think it gives people a vocabulary sometimes to wrestle with things that maybe previous generations didn't have a vocabulary for. So um, I don't view it as negative development. I think in some regards, it's positive development. It 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 expands the retinue of possibilities for people to express self search for greater dimensions of self whether they're successful or not i suppose is as varying as the individuals who participate in it yeah well thank you for that and thank you for the point about religions always being syncretic you know i have a background in the history of religion so i know that that is true i know that that's very very true but yet people like to think that there is this like original pure form of their religions yeah uh, you know we see that like in christianity they think that there was this original pure christianity and that we have fallen away from it and the goal then is presented that we have to try to get back to what was original what was pure and that's a theme that i see also in occult movements you uh mentioned i I hope i pronounce this correctly the prisca theologia Mm -hmm. which is this idea that there was uh an ancient or primeval theology and i see this sometimes that people are trying to get back to that in some aspects yes there's this fetish that we as modern people have for everything that is old right feeling that the older, the more virtuous, the older, the more real, the older, the more unspoiled. It was funny. Edgar Allan Poe wrote in the early 1840s, towards the end of his life, um, he said, the world is overrun just now uh, by followers of a new sect. It's so new that uh, it, it has not yet chosen a name for itself. They are the believers in everything old. And, you know, he was putting his finger on the pulse of the times and that in both the United States and Europe, we were just seeing the flowering of the earliest vestiges of the occult revival. And Paul was right in that it was so new, we didn't have a name for it yet. Now we look back and we call it the occult revival. But of course, when you're experiencing a revival, nobody knows it. So, so Poe said that these are the believers in everything old and You'll see this on social media today. People try to kind of one-up one another intellectually by suggesting that, well, what you're into is not real hermeticism. What I'm into is real hermeticism because it's older, as if if age connotes value and as if newness or novelty means that something is intrinsically spoiled or fickle or fake. And these are all just human constructs we as a human community, and one of the things I certainly learned while I was writing the book, we are 
it's very, very difficult for us to get in touch with religious ideas from the past. They reach us in fragments, absolute fragments. Um, Hermeticism itself is a good example. That was a late ancient philosophy. It was a mixture, a melange of Greek and Egyptian thought. And there have been relatively few quality English translations of the Hermetic literature, which originates in Greek, because in the Renaissance, textual analysis discovered that, oh, well, gee, this stuff is from late antiquity. It's from the decades after the death of Christ. It's not really that old. And it sullied the hopes of people in the Renaissance who thought that the Hermetic literature and its its rediscovery represented the discovery of this Prisca theologia, this primeval theology. And when they discovered, oh, well, guess what? This was written down after the death of Cleopatra, after the death of Christ. So uh, when Renaissance thinkers discovered indisputably that the Hermetic literature had been written down after the death of Cleopatra, after the death of Christ, there was eventually disappointment that settled over the project and a feeling that it was fraudulent, it was sullied. I think that that judgment was terribly hasty because it mistook the fact for the actual writing down of these ideas for their actual vintage versus them having been built on earlier oral tradition. And I think we nowadays understand everything from, I mean, literally from Homer to to Lao Tzu, the author of the Tao Te Ching, building on oral tradition. We don't even know that any of these figures actually exist. We don't know that Socrates existed. Right. You know, we don't know that Pythagoras existed. We 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 like to reference the past by saying these venerable names, but we don't actually have much evidence for the existence of a great many of these 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 figures. Very often in antiquity authors were not individual personalities but maybe were writing on behalf of a of a military or of a philosophical school or of a religious school or something and it's it's more of a modern device in a sense that authors have emerged as individual personalities so all i'm really trying to say is that the devising of ancient philosophies the devising of ancient religions was a much messier project than we are accustomed to today and <clears throat> We don't have original copies of a lot of stuff that we reference all the time, which means that what we're translating, and this is certainly the case with the Hermetic literature, are copies of copies of copies, which any scribe who was working on, he or she, well, most likely he, was making judgment calls. Do I like this word? Do I like that word? Or had ideas of their own and inserted those ideas. And the scholar of esotericism, Walter Honegraaff, who's a inspiration to me, Walter makes a very, very important point, which is that when we're dealing with ancient religious ideas, our red flag should go up. Our, our caution signal should start buzzing. When we start encountering ideas that sound comfortably familiar, because that may be, may be a sign that some nameless translator, scribe, librarian along the way inserted his own ideas into this that, that may have been of a more modern flavor. Doesn't necessarily mean that's true, but he's warning us that there's not a library of Hermeticism or a library of 
the the ancient mystery traditions of Greece that we could just go to and access the original goodies. We're accessing copies of copies of copies of copies. Stuff got destroyed. We know the history of human violence, the violence of one movement against another. It's universal, unfortunately. So we have destruction of things. We have fragmentary things. We have things that got lost, things that got shuffled. So when we're reapproaching the past, we're 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 on our knees peeking through a keyhole. And so I describe occultism as a revivalist project. Look, the same could be said of practically of Judaism. The same could be said of Christianity. The same could be said of of of, of Hinduism. You know, we we're not as in touch with the past as we believe we are. There's constant adaptations. The Jewish liturgy itself, we think of it as being very ancient. Well, it, it pretty much goes back to the Middle Ages, and that's awfully old. But it's not antiquity, you know. And and we lose our sense of how difficult it is to traffic with the past. <clears throat> yeah. What really immediately comes to my mind, and this is a little bit of a off topic, I suppose. But as you were speaking, what really came to mind was is it Jean Baudrillard? You know, simulacrum and simulacrum and simulacrum, because that's what he says. We just have copies of copies of copies of copies, and that yeah, know, like there's no real original. Right, there's no real original. It's pretty, it's pretty goddamn sobering, you know, when you yeah. get down to. Well, yeah. but that's a challenge for us in many ways. I mean, we have to kind of rethink, I suppose, how we imagine not just, you know, the occult traditions, the esoteric traditions, but all the traditions. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, you know, we don't have the original gospels. Uh, right. You know, how freaky is that? Right. You know, how yeah. freaky is that? Yeah. And 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 plus, you know, we don't even know what we've lost, what was thrown out at the Council of Nicene. And, yeah. and then we rediscover Gnostic gospels, so-called, that have survived. And um, were these considered, you, you know, as, as Christendom was taking shape, were they not considered? Were they under the radar? It's a it's a wrestling match to determine well what is and isn't the real McCoy and who gets to say so. Yeah. We're in a very disad. I mean, one one could say we're in a disadvantageous position with regard to our past, but a better or less fatalistic way of putting it might be just acknowledging mm. the disadvantage and maybe heaven forbid, heaven forbid, being a little more humble about what we know and what we don't know. You know? Yeah. For sure. And, but it also seems like it, it's kind of liberating in a way yeah. that we get to explore this. And, and I agree 100% about the humility. And I think that one of the things that we have to do in the 21st century is kind of embrace uncertainty and learn to surf those waves. Yeah. That's why I'm not down with people trying to demonstrate seriousness by kissing downward, let's say, yeah. on whatever source material or movements they feel are airsats or false. Yeah. And I I noticed that even within the spiritual culture, the alternative spiritual culture, the new age spiritual culture, let's say, people will come to me and as a way of demonstrating their seriousness will rush to tell me that they hate things like the secret or they hate uh, the Kabbalion, or they hate some popular expression of a spiritual idea. And 
to me, that's like complaining about the weather. You know, what what's the purpose of it all? The secret, which is now uh, over uh, 15 years old, I think, it, it's it's we're reaching the point where we need a new punching bag. Mm-hmm. And look, it's simply a an expression of modern mystical ideas that have been very popular and widely embraced uh, among the Western mindset for, say, the past 150 years or so. And I've always said that the whole mind causation movement, often called New Thought, which is a movement that I think had a lot of fine instincts for human nature, did a better job of popularizing than of refining itself. So if that movement wants to remain vital and serious, it needs to refine itself. I wrote a book called Daydreaming Believer, where I I came to my best reckoning with the whole mind causation thesis. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very different from what you'll see in The Secret or, or certain popular expressions. But it also honors those expressions, at least the early ones, for having a really fine instinct for aspects of human nature that are now very commonly discussed. Uh, questions of mind over matter as they are considered in a, a, a field like neuroplasticity, for example, are not controversial. The implications may be controversial, but the actual data of whatever we call thoughts, this undefined thing that we call a thought affecting brain matter is widely accepted. The mechanism is not understood. The implications are controversial, but the data is, is clear. Now, I've pinpointed New Thought works from the late 19th century that use actual language that is a lot like the language that's used in neuroplasticity, talking in terms of setting grooves into our thinking patterns. And these are all just these are all just metaphors, as as is most of our psychological and and social and spiritual language. It's metaphors that we all agree to use. And you only notice the overuse of a metaphor in hindsight, so 19th century writers would use the word soul a lot, and they would never define soul, and it can be really wearying. And now that convention has sort of left us, but we've substituted our own conventions for it. And there's all kinds of things that we talk about that we can't that we can't really define or grasp, such as the term thought itself. Even as we barrel towards something called AI, <laughs> nobody really has a consensus definition of thought or intelligence it's 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 very elusive anyway all this is to say that i think that it's important to know our history it's important to know our past because it's like knowing ourselves it's like walking through life and never looking down or looking up you know we we can't really know ourselves if we don't at least have some modicum of perspective so it's vitally important but we can do without the ego business of another metaphor of people yeah. saying, oh, this is bullshit or that's bullshit because it's not sufficiently old or because it has some dramatic conceit or because they don't perceive it as sufficiently serious enough, what have you. I think that that, that fails to acknowledge the position of disadvantage that we're all in, in, in terms of availing ourselves of, of the ancient past. Yeah, there are several things I want to comment on and ask about. But what really comes to mind here is that I believe it's towards the end of the book that you make the comment about 
that what's really happening here is something that is more individual rather than collective. And, And I do want to talk about this collective because one of the main things I wanted to ask you about today is some of the political aspects of the occult, because I find that really fascinating. But it seems to me that in this move towards the individual, we have to try to give up and, you know, a lot of the, the tradition and allow ourselves to feel empowered in a sense. Mm-hmm. I've seen that in myself. I remember mm-hmm. when I was much younger, I was I had an interest in Wicca. And then I read Ronald Hutton, who is like, oh, well, you know what Gardner was doing. And you do discuss Gardner in the book. You know, he was kind of putting things together. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of Wiccans like to say, oh, no, there's this tradition that is kind of unbroken. Uh, but even there, it's not. It is this, you know, as you keep saying, it is this reconstruction of mm. something that came before. Uh, yeah. So it seems like, you know, and I don't know what it is in the individual that prevents us from claiming that power to say, well, it's okay. It's right. okay if it's a reconstruction. You know, right. I don't need the tradition. I don't need right. the authority. Yeah, it, it, I, I think that's right on. It doesn't mean that the person, look, I'll put it this way. I think that it feeds the imagination. It feeds the ability of the individual uh, to be ardently educated in whatever your area of interest is and to really know what you're talking about. If you want to build a bridge, you have to have some engineering principles. I think everybody would agree with that. Don't build a suspension bridge unless you have a grasp of engineering. Bad idea. Now, what someone's personal spirituality is is not a matter of life and death necessarily, as a a good suspension bridge is. But I do think that the individual will do... I think it expands creativity and imagination and productiveness and communication skills to be ardently educated, including self-educated. But I do think that spirituality is an act of self-discovery. It's self-inquiry. And and I, I don't think that we can or ought to, or that it's possible to set guardrails or boundaries on the injunctive know thyself. How could those guardrails be set? And individuals are going to participate in things that speak to their deepest needs. I just don't want people to get overly hung up on these on 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 parameters that have been set by somebody else, on decisions that have been made by somebody else, including in the in the distant or or recent past. So, for example, those of us who live in the West, we are very attached to the models of Abrahamic religion, Abrahamic religion being Judaism, Christianity, Islam. All three of these faiths are very similarly structured. There's, you know, good up here in the heavens or however you want to describe it. There's bad down here in Hades or hell or however you want to describe it. And it's the job of the individuals stuck in the middle to please the higher end so as to gain salvation. Less pronounced in Judaism than it is in Christianity and Islam, but to a very great extent, that's the cosmic 
structure that's been handed to us. And I'm astonished at how many people consider themselves radical travelers on the road of life who adhere to that structure without ever once questioning it, ever once questioning it, you know, b- believing inherently that that there is this monotheistic point of creativity that a Muslim might call Allah, uh, a Christian might call God, a Jew might call something else, and 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 never questioning that metaphysics as if it's as 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 given to us as 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 any uh, quotidian practice that we engage in, like you know washing your hands uh, after making a mess, and and never once should it be questioned. And we have actually no reason to believe that model is absolute outside of the fact that it was conceptualized as such by people who formulated our Western worldview after the decline of polytheism, paganism, and so forth, and, and during that, of course. And it's very persuasive, and some of it goes back to Aristotle, and some of it goes to other places, and it may very well be true, but it is conceptual, and it doesn't necessarily have set a boundary for how the individual engages with his or her search. And that's true in so many different ways. There are therapeutic truisms that we'll hear. You know, you you have to you have to forgive, and you don't you don't forgive for the other person. You forgive for yourself, and you know all these yeah, things yeah. that are like yes, yes, of course that's well. How do I know that's true? I've I wrote an essay once questioning the imperative of forgiveness, and I couldn't even find a publisher for it. You know, I said it to all these different magazine editors who perhaps view themselves as heterodox thinkers and they were like no fucking way you know it's like my <laughs> third rail of thought and 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 i i believe that we as a human community are, are entitled to question and verify and ask ourselves well look there's a very beautiful expression of the power of forgiveness in the sermon on the mount for example but I don't know that that's the final word on the matter. And, 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 and these things have to be engaged with by each generation, each individual, in a way that proves their efficacy. And I don't know that accelerants don't exist. You know, people say in the search, there are no shortcuts. Maybe true, maybe true. But I don't fully know that. And I think that we have to be willing within the privacy of our own psyches to ask these questions. There's a wonderful philosopher of science his name is escaping me at the moment you'd you'd recognize it and I'm, I'm so sorry his name is escaping me he wrote a book called against method and i i quote oh, from him yes now. i know the book and now his name is escaping me too it's well, actually behind just, me in my bookcase <laughs> uh, i'm gonna look it up because you know instead of pretending i'm not oh put P- paul F- 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 R- ben. Yeah, R- ben. Yeah. very controversial yeah. guy but I like his work very much. And he wrote in one of his books, it's not in Against Method. I think perhaps it's in another of his books. I'm, I'm just taking the liberty of, of looking it up. Oh, well, yeah, I believe actually it is It is Against Method. And there's another book that he wrote that I, I highly recommend. Um, forgive my indulgence in, in looking this up as we're talking, but it's worth recommending. I don't see it immediately listed. Anyway, Fayar Ben uh, wrote that he believes in being an anarchist in thought, in private life, uh, not in public life, at least not in his public life, because 
as he articulates it, I'm paraphrasing, I have, I have no wish to structure a, a world according to my wishes in, in the outer, you know, we're, we're all going to engage in various political projects, but in the inner and in private life, I am, I believe in, in a kind of personal anarchy. And I was very, very, very sympathetic to that way he structured it. And I think that every man and woman can claim that sense of absolute ultimate freedom within, freedom of the psyche, freedom to search. It doesn't mean that you're pushing for a policy or legislation or fixing something in outer life that, that other people are going to have to live with. But but you, the individual, can live with certain ideas, try them, discard them, experiment with them, see, see what occurs, you know, see what occurs. But I, I feel very strongly that time is finite for us in these bodies. And what what is the individual waiting for? What is the individual waiting for? You know, I knew an independent religious scholar who was very interested in a certain piece of channel literature and the the channel had, uh, I guess she was now dead, but one of her works had been published in French and translated into English. And another of the works had been published in French and not translated. And he and his wife were so interested in the, the nature of this channel literature that that they translated it privately just for themselves. And he shared it with me and he said, listen, you're not to tell anybody about this. This is just between us, because he felt it would hurt his reputation if he was seen participating in this. And I'll respect anyone's privacy, but I thought to myself, well, what are you waiting for? You know, how valuable is this reputation that you're protecting? Because you don't want people to know that you, as sort of an independent uh, religious thinker, are interested in this channel of literature. And I've met several such figures in my travels people who had certain kinds of reputations and didn't want to be associated perhaps with esotericism, mysticism, occultism, or some variant that might be called new age for fear that it would harm their reputations. And I respect that. I'm not here to tell anybody what to do with their lives, but I would try to say to them in private moments, what exactly are you waiting for? Because this material might be of assistance to somebody else you might find other people to exchange with if you were more open about this, and it might do something to bring some levity to the scholarly culture, which could use some levity. And anyway, it's for everybody to decide on his or her own, but people should rejoice in the fact that they have absolute freedom within. I think it's wonderful, and they should be bound by nothing. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that 100%. And coming out of academia, I can appreciate everything you said. And I also appreciate that in your writings, you're always very clear that you are coming from a, you're a historian, but you're also coming from a place of, you're a believer, right? Yeah. A practitioner. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to me that looking at academia, you have very few people who openly will say, oh yes, I am part of new age or I embrace esotericism or the occult. There are a few individuals that I can think that actually will look into things that academia has, for the most part, said, oh, no, 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 that's forbidden. Uh, so like Jeffrey Kripal, for example, I think yeah. is one. Um, but it's rare. And rare. I, I think that the maybe the structures in academia prevent that. 
because you know you know jeffrey can do what jeffrey did because he has tenure <laughs> and, you know that is so, exactly correct yeah yeah exactly correct and and jeff did something very brilliant at rice university where he's now associate dean of the humanities jeff was previously the chair of the religious studies department that department is now chaired by april deconic and jeff made what i thought was a brilliant gamble and the gamble paid off he got to Rice and he said, well, listen, I want to make this religious studies department into a world-class department, but there's no way we can compete with the big boys. We're not going to compete with Princeton and Harvard and so forth. We're not going to get the best you know, scholar of biblical languages, lure him away, <laughs> lure him or her away from Union Theological Seminary or Columbia. So what can we do? Well, I'm going to make this place into the defining department that studies the esoteric, that studies what might be called the occult. And, and he succeeded. So if a person wants to pursue esoteric studies from within the structure of a religious studies academic environment, Rice is a terrific place to be. And there's a general lesson in that too, that we may be in situations where we find ourselves the equivalent of a landlocked country. Okay, so, you know, excellence in, in maritime commerce or, you know, having a great Navy may not be on the agenda if you find yourself in uh, a landlocked nation, but what, what do you have? What do you got? And I think the individual, I, I feel very strongly that, that, that ideas and principles translate. They translate on intimate levels, they translate on micro levels, they translate on macro levels. And so I just thought he had a stroke of, of genius. He was willing to take a chance. He was saying, rather than just be a mini me version of whatever's going on at the University of Michigan or some big place with big budgets, I don't have a big budget. What's the best thing I can do with the resources that I have? And he did it. And he's opened up a lot of doors for people. Yeah, I, I wish he I wish that the department were what it is now when I was doing graduate school. Oh, know, sure. Looking at my doctorate because I felt, you know, there was nowhere to go. Where do you go to do all of this? So I went to the one place I could find. But even then, you know, it's interesting. This is just, you know, personal. I have had the experience of faculty at the community college level saying, yeah, your degree is worthless because of the thing, you know, where I went and what they look at. And, you know, it's an accredited university and there are some really good people there. So there's a lot of bias against. So I, you know, I applaud Jeff Kripal for what he's, what he's done. There's huge bias and we validate things in this country and in many countries through institutional affiliation. Yeah. And it's the good and bad. It's a good and bad, you know, institutional affiliation can be helpful in some ways, the juried process conservatively defined can be helpful in some ways terribly limiting in other ways it's been terribly limiting for example in terms of parapsychology i can't i cannot at least up to this point effectively communicate with people in mainstream media about how frankly little they know about findings of parapsychology over the past 80 90 years and they're terribly blinkered by the success of a professional skeptics apparatus, which has done a very good job, very successful job of ensconcing itself 
in mainstream academia, mainstream media, mainstream reference, Wiki in particular, and it's impenetrable. And I know the literature, I know the studies. Of course, I have my own sympathies and I have my own blind spots, but I've tried to take the long view and the data and the findings that have come out of parapsychology pertaining, let's say, to ESP, precognition, clairvoyance, and so forth. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And it's bulletproof and it's replicable and it's repeatedly validated. I can't get arrested, you know, with, you know, making this argument, you know, I can't get arrested. So I communicated as best I'm able, but the folks who control the levers at Wiki and in mainstream media, Wiki especially, there's no communicating with them. It's a locked box. They, they, they're ardent materialists. They believe that matter creates itself. Everything in life, more or less, is a, a chemical process. To speak of non-local influences or extra physical influences is like talking about uh, just sheer fantasy. You may as well be discussing Santa Claus. And that's it. And the discussion can go no further. This is an area where institutional structure has failed us, has failed us. Uh, we as a human community are at least a generation behind where we ought to be in terms of parapsychology because the field has been so successfully smeared and sullied through largely an activist project on Wikipedia where uh, self-anointed skeptics, I would argue in many cases, uh, not all, but in many cases, uh, pseudo-skeptics, people who are just rejectionists and defenders of materialism because it makes them feel safe, you know, which is probably what, what drives us toward most of our ideologies, promulgate an ideology and they do a very good job. And I can't do anything about it. I don't have time other than writing and speaking. I'm not spending, you know, 20, 25 hours a day on Wikipedia fighting with people over, you know, vocabulary terms. I simply can't. So they've won and, and, and they're wrong. And that's an area where you can have victory and you can be wrong. And we've seen it plenty of times throughout human history, intellectually and otherwise. So in certain cases, the institutional model succeeds. In certain cases, it fails. But when people have based their career upon emerging from that institutional model and emerging with some degree of personal security, it's it's very rare that you can tell them that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we discussed this a little bit the last time that you were on the uh, program and I'll just kind of repeat this, you know, one of the classes historically that I've taught has been critical thinking and logic. And mm. according to the learning outcomes, I'm supposed to address pseudoscience. Oh, and okay. in, <laughs> <That's wild. laughs> yeah. And in one of the textbooks, and this is a logic textbook, this is one of the most influential or most adopted logic books in the nation. There's a chapter on all of this. And when it comes to things like ESP, it says, well, there's just no evidence for it. Right, right. And right. I cannot in good conscience, I'm surprised that anyone still hires me, but I cannot in good conscience stand there and tell students, well, there's no evidence for this when I know for a fact that there's evidence. And I and I see it as indoctrination that we're just, you yeah. know, higher education is kind of like indoctrinating students into this materialistic worldview. Sure. The I wrote a piece about J.B. Ryan, the, the yeah. statistician, the scientist who inaugurated the first parapsychology lab at Duke University in the early 1930s. Did so with his wife, Louisa Ryan, also a trained statistician, botanist, scientist. And uh, JB's work, as I've widely written, has been totally misrepresented. In fact, JB, 
and his uh, laboratory partners actually um, spearheaded innovations that lifted up the social sciences as a whole. For example, JB insisted in his ESP experiments on reporting every experiment, whatever the findings, there, 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 there was to be no null sets left somewhere in the file drawer, which is a constant issue and problem in the social sciences in general. And back in the day, in the 1930s, the standards were sufficiently poor in the social sciences that <clears throat> if a team of researchers got a, uh, a negative trial or a negative series of trials, they not infrequently took the liberty of thinking, oh, well, this can't be right. There must have been something wrong with our methodology. So let's put this away in the file drawer, so to speak, and we'll publish the good stuff, you know. Right. And that was a, a real crisis in the social sciences. And JB reversed that entirely by reporting every set. But the recently deceased pseudoskeptic James Randi, who you can watch a hagiographic yeah. documentary of called An Honest Liar, which mentions none of this, you know, he published a guide for uh, middle school and high school teachers in which he said flat out and specifically, and I referenced this in my work, it's not hard to find, James said specifically that JB, Ryan, and partners didn't report any of their null sets, and that's why he got results. And I've said this before, and I don't like saying it, but these are the facts. Uh, James was around for a long, long time, and James had to have known the facts that not only did JB report everything, but he spearheaded the practice in the field. James lied, you know, flat out, not an honest liar, which is a cute turn of a phrase, but just a plain old one. And uh, nobody came to me when they were making that documentary. We would have had quite a day. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, 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 and the public doesn't know it. Kids don't know it. Students don't know it. Teachers don't know it. I guess they feel particularly strongly about that particular example, although it's one of a hundred, because it was in a guide that was distributed free to middle and high school teachers. And that if an ambitious, curious kid came up and said, hey, you know, I'm sort of interested in this uh, ESP research, I can only imagine that such a kid was given the old smackdown and told, you know, come on, you know, enough of the tooth fairy, yeah. get back to your homework. And and so we, we I, I hate to see people squelch um, the ignition of interest among uh, a young person it's encountered so rarely yeah. uh, or an old person or anybody you know anybody who's independently interested in something and james specifically functioned as an agent of uh, i don't know call it what you will i guess a, a deceptive ideology that 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 in favor of materialism i wouldn't be surprised if in this textbook you're referencing most of the sources are references to books or articles that came out of Prometheus, a publishing house based in Buffalo, New York, in upstate New York, which for decades and decades has published lots of materials that that that, that come out of the professional skeptics movement. It's it's very poor material. I, I mean, it's it's almost the equivalent of going to a, a fundamentalist Bible college to ask them what they think of my work. You know, uh, there might be one or two people there who are like, "He's not so bad," but a lot of people would would have a a predictable point of view. And it's a problem in our culture. I have no solution to it. As I've said, the professional skeptics apparatus, they've prevailed. They've won culturally. They've lost intellectually. So we're in this kind of peculiar in-between yeah. place that future generations will have to sort out. Yeah. Well, and I think it's crucial because we seem to be in this shift where we're moving away from the materialist paradigm 
Yeah. And the findings of the parapsychologists are, you know, helpful in that. And, you know, the, the book I was referring to, I don't think I'll double check this, but I don't think they even referred to anything. I don't think in the back of the book, there was a citation. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just flat out said there's no evidence, right. (laughs) You know, and I think that often what happens is people will say, well, there's no evidence when they just don't know that there's evidence. They they don't know. It's an honest mistake sometimes. If you can call ignorance, honesty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But my guess is that even if they knew that there was evidence, they probably wouldn't have included it. Yeah. Um, I've had people who come up to me making the declaration that there's no evidence and they honestly believe that sometimes. (laughs) And, And they have reason to believe it because if they put if someone puts ESP research into the Google window, the first five results you'll get will be awfully persuasive along the lines of your textbook and it's lights out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, there, you know, these people like James Randi and some of the other pseudo skeptics, you know, they're acting as gatekeepers and what comes to mind is, you know, they're the archons. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and it's so weird because people like that view themselves as the protectors of rationality And to tell them that they're anti-rational, if we define rationality as methodological reasoning, to tell them that they're anti-intellectual is outrageous. You know, it's like telling the Pope he's not Catholic. You know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't square, it doesn't wash. And they get very angry and very sarcastic, very bent towards rhetorical questions and so forth and so on. And the poverty of that movement intellectually is extreme at this juncture. And like all problems, it will get sorted out in time, but it might not get sorted out in our generation. Right. So, you know, one of the questions or what I kind of want you to comment on is, you know, you you have a chapter in the new book, The Science of the Supernatural, that addresses all of this. And I think that on one hand, someone may be led to think, well, why include this on a book on modern occultism? You know, what 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 exactly is its place? And the way that I think about this is going all the way back to sort of the hermetic ideas of that all is mind. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's where the connection is, that it is part of this thread and i like how at one point you described you know there's a thread but it's a a frayed thread which i think is a really accurate way of describing this but is that am i on the right track in terms of oh oh, absolutely you know in terms of my most immediate concern with parapsychology from a historical point of view in the book a lot of what we call parapsychology today the study of the extra physical it grew out of this vast spiritualist movement and wave of spiritualism that swept through the Western world starting in the mid-19th century, where people felt that they could form into seance circles, solicit midnight raps, and talk to the unseen world, talk to the spirits of the dead. And these claims of mediumship were what gave earliest inception to parapsychology. Scientists in Great Britain, US, France, Italy said to themselves, all right, is there any proof for any of this stuff? Can we subject any of the um, phenomena of the seance table to scientific protocols? And in so doing, they found that most of it was fraudulent, but there were areas that were really tantalizing and extraordinary and that resisted 
explanation. And this thread continued into the 20th and now the 21st century where we have cases that, again, under really rigorous, scrupulously structured, repeated conditions seem to provide statistical evidence for some extra physical quality of the psyche. Some non-local, as you were saying, mind or intellect, and, and more so <clears throat> other such experiences, near-death experiences, after-death experiences, physical evidence gathered in field studies that, that are suggestive, that su su suggest reincarnation or eternal recurrence. I'm speaking of the great UVA psychiatrist Ian Stevenson, who's now deceased, but his division of perceptual studies continues at UVA. He made decades-long, very rigorous studies of correspondences between living children who were experiencing trauma and deceased figures sometimes living nearby, and they bore similar physical markings to their bodies and similar physical circumstances and so on. And it's difficult to encapsulate his research and its comprehensiveness, but I write about him somewhat in the book. So there were these efforts made in laboratory settings to validate some of the claims that were growing out of occult revivalism. And that's continued. And it's it's extremely controversial, but the work has really continued with such rigor. <clears throat> and it's so important to me because it expands our sense of who we are as, as human beings. And it, 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 it matters in as much as being able to recognize the sound of one's own voice matters. We can't know ourselves, uh, an injunction that we all claim to agree with and nod our heads at unless we're willing to make inquiries into the full nature of human life. And we are beings, it seems to me, for which we have evidence. We are beings that exceed flesh and bone and cognition and motor skill. There's some other aspect to human life that we might call spiritual or religious, I call extra physical. And parapsychology adds a leaf to that to that book, that book of understanding, very incomplete. Yeah. Oh, and what comes to my mind is William James, and you, you know, bring in William James in the book, but in the varieties of religious experience on his chapter on mysticism, you know, he describes that, you know, after his experience with nitrous oxide, he's got this, I should have this memorized, I quote it so often, but, you know, he has that statement that, you know, just apply the requisite stimuli and there's like a different world right there, you know, and he right. says that no account of the universe would be complete without them. And that's how I think about all this, the, the parapsychological studies and everything is that if we want to understand not just ourselves, but the universe at large and what's real, we have to consider them. And we are blinding ourselves if we just ignore it and say, well, that's just not true. Right. And, and it's important for me to add an edge to that. Yeah. We live in an age in the 21st century. This is the era of TED Talks, right, where right. a neurologist would come along and say, well, it's very simple what William James was experiencing on nitrous oxide. It's nothing but, it's nothing but this center right. of the brain being affected and this frontal lobe and, da, 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 and this is what happens. And the religious appeal is nothing but this center of the brain being lit up and this is what happens. And the illusion of free will is nothing but 
this neurological phenomenon, and so on and so forth. And the placebo response is nothing but the release of you know anti-inflammatory enzymes. The body. Nothing but, nothing but, nothing but. What 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 we don't realize in our tech-driven neuroscience will save us era of 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 headset wearing TED Talk deliverers is that it's like blind men describing an elephant. What they're identifying may be, and in many cases is demonstrably true. But where on earth comes the idea that it's the only game in town, that it's the only thing happening? Maybe the release of enzymes and anti-inflammatory biochemicals is what the religious appeal looks like in the body, among a dozen other things that are actually going on. How do we know that that's the only game in town? And it's this triumphalism that James was wrestling with in the Victorian age, that we are still wrestling with in the digital age, that because a blind man grabs the elephant's tail and he says, Aha, it's a snake. Well, he's having a tactile experience that ac that's accurate, but it's not a snake. And another blind man grabs the, the leg and says, it's a tree. Again, accurate tactile experience, it's not a tree. And there's this presumption, it's almost this magic bullet thinking that as soon as I've identified one thing, a brain scan demonstrates to me that everybody who takes nitrous oxide fires really heavy on the prefrontal cortex that's what's going on. Stimulate the prefrontal cortex and you've got the experience. Never mind, you know, your Dionysian rituals, William James. We understand what's going on. We don't understand. We understand in as much as we're, we've got one piece of evidence, whereas there may be a dozen others that we've overlooked and that we will never search for because we've closed the books. That's the problem with our era. That's the problem with the materialist cultures and even to some degree with all of modernist intelligentsia is rejection of the extra physical, a rejection that is not demanded by modernist philosophy. It seems to me the whole basis of modernist philosophy is the search for antecedents. There's something going on under the hood. But culturally, we as a Western community seem to have made the decision that whatever that something is that's going on under the hood, it may be economics, it may be neurosis, it may be some physical cause, it can't be extra physical. Well, why would that be when we have millennia not only of testimony and experience, which I contend is a record, but we actually have this field called parapsychology, where in addition to uh, testimony and experience, we have actual statistically mapped replicable evidence. And yet, modernism as an intellectual movement has never been able to come to grips with the possibility of the extra physical strictly for cultural reasons just because well you know darwin was supposed to have gotten rid of all that stuff well never mind the fact that darwin was religious well isaac newton said, well never mind the fact that isaac newton was an alchemist and was busy translating hermetic literature well marx said this freud said this well freud was a member of both the british and the american Societies for Psychical Research was very interested in ESP research, something I write about in the book. Admittedly, Marx less so, but you know, Marx's idea that religion was blinkering the people, it's insufficient. It, it just doesn't cover all the bases. Sure, a certain variant of sin and salvation, Victorian religion, as Marx experienced it, was a serious problem in that culture, but you can't, that's painting with too broad a brush. But for those cultural reasons, Modernist intelligentsia everywhere, in journalism, in media, in academia, has decided to a great extent 
this stuff is is nonsense. This stuff is verboten. And it doesn't stand up. It's just a taste. It's a proclivity. Um, it's subjective. And I, 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 materialism as a philosophy is insufficient. It's viewed as this philosophy of hard-headed reality. Again, the idea that matter creates itself. There's no free will. Everything is a chemical and biological process. Um, you know, life is 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 no more than, or thought, we'll say, is no more than the bubbles in a glass of carbonated water, the water being the brain. You get rid of the water, the bubbles are gone. End of story. Well, there's no evidence for that. And there's evidence to the contrary, including in fields that are not controversial, like neuroplasticity, including in perceptual studies that are growing out of quantum physics and quantum theory. I mean, my God, you read Scientific American today, and it's more far out than anything I ever write. And and these are these are these are sources that are not controversial, but the implications are controversial. And and modernism, materialism is so rejecting of dealing with the implications that those movements are going to conscript themselves to irrelevancy at a certain point. I mean, you just can't keep smashing the telescope over and over and saying that everything's just fine. You know, it, it catches up with you. Yeah. Do you think that in the context of the book, the rediscovery of hermetic texts i think can be connected very clearly to the birth of the renaissance and i'm curious if we're in something like a new renaissance yeah i i think that we are and it's not a stretch to say that and i i'm very resistant of over applying labels revivals or this that or right, the other right, thing right. How tech is changing us. I think we're yeah. we're we're too high on those ideas sometimes. But I agree with that, and I agree with it for very concrete reasons. <clears throat> Renaissance thinkers rediscovered Hermeticism in the 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 mid to latter 1400s, and it did a lot to sort of inform the Renaissance mind that there was this whole glacial past of human history that. Judeo-Christianity was not encompassing of. And we today are benefactors of new discoveries ourselves, not only in terms of some of the stuff I've been talking about, but historically. I had mentioned that there have been very few really good serviceable translations of Hermetic literature. We in this generation are recipients of the first really good serviceable English translations of Hermetic literature. The first one, as far as I'm concerned, was ventured by a scholar named Brian Copenhaver in 1992. He published Hermetica with Cambridge University Press. It's a brilliant, brilliant book that translates the key Renaissance-era Hermetic texts. Another effort was made in 2000 by a translator named Clement Salomon and a team of collaborators that was published by Inner Traditions called The Way of Hermes. And there are other translations coming, but the efforts by Copenhagen and, and, and Salomon were unprecedented. They were unprecedented. We had early 20th century efforts by G.R.S. Mead, a brilliant mind, great, great scholar of esotericism. He was a secretary to Madame H.P. Blavatsky, and Mead translated the Hermetic literature, but his translation weighs it down with a lot of very heavy, leaden Victorian prose 
that's difficult for 21st century readers to get through. Whereas the Copenhagen and Salomon efforts are fantastic. They're super readable. They're exquisitely scholarly. They're, they're, they're really well done. We're also rediscovering astrological texts that were originally written in Greek or Latin that are now being translated for the first time into English uh, uh, through Project Hindsight, as well as other efforts. And they're opening the eyes of people to the fact that what we have settled on as astrological practice in the West, however one feels about it, is not necessarily the name of the game. Again, it's conditioned. It's the stuff that came down to us, the stuff that survived. And and turns out there have been other survivals which we haven't been able to avail ourselves of because they haven't been in English. So that stuff is getting translated. So you've got the first good hermetic translations going down right now. You got the first good studies of some some untranslated astrological text going down right now you've got good translations going down of some early and not so early um occult texts like eliphas levi's a doctrine and ritual of high magic which was published in two parts in the mid 19th century back in my publishing days i was very proud to publish a a good, good, solid, serviceable translation of Elphus Levi, astounding that we haven't had it. So for all these reasons, there is, oh, I haven't even mentioned the rediscovery of the some of the Gnostic scrolls at Nagamadi in Egypt towards the end of World War II. Very recent, very recent. And translations are still coming out of that material. It's extraordinary. I mean, we have Gnostic gospels that <clears throat> maybe would have changed Western religion had they existed, been known of in an earlier century millennium and and they're available to us now so there's a re-engagement with gnosticism re-engagement with hermeticism re-engagement with some things that we refer to as a cult or esoteric in, in in a way that wasn't available to previous generations so we are going through a, a mini renaissance of re-engagement with these texts it's very exciting and people shouldn't waste the opportunity it used to be that a generation ago, two generations ago, if a person wanted to study the hermetic literature, he or she had very few places to go if you're an English-speaking person. Well, now there are good places to go. And, and Gnosticism, I mean, Gnosticism was not widely even talked about in the early 20th century. And when the term itself was coined, gosh, I think it was in the 16th century, 17th century, it was a pejorative. It referred to this kind of mess of stuff that was neither Christian nor Jewish nor pagan, just a messy melange of stuff that certain Mediterranean sects were bopping around thinking about. Well, now we recognize that Gnosticism possesses a profundity and we have texts that speak to it. And I remember I was watching the Barbie movie uh, a few months ago and first 20 minutes of that movie are Gnostic to the core. And we see this over and over in our culture. Somebody wakes up and realizes that I'm living in an ersatz world. This is not yeah. the real thing. It's the Matrix. It's the Truman Show. It's it's Barbie's make-believe world or whatever it is. And this analysis is so familiar today that we overlook it because we all share it. it, it it's, it's, it's seeped into the groundwater. And at its heart, that is the Gnostic analysis that is the gnostic analysis that men and women are trapped in a world that's not real it's ersatz it's fake and 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 even the gods that we worship are not real they're 
they're they're they're overlords of illusion and we have to break through through gnosis through inner knowing to something else we live in a gnostic culture to some extent it permeates our entertainment which is very important and i mean it's the way that we all communicate with one another and and that's new that's different you wouldn't have had that analysis at just at any old time in any old generation it's 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 not absolutely unique to our times but its popularity is right right and uh, you know i i have a personal love for the gnostics and gnosticism and i'm glad that we got there because there are some things that we haven't talked about that i wanted to discuss please and one of them is in regards to gnosticism and i'm just going to read this is a quote from your book so for anyone who's not all that familiar with it i think this will be really helpful uh, the false god or demiurge is at once demanding, punishing, and covetous of loyalty like a cruel parent. In some Gnostic texts, the figure of Christ is an authentic, liberating, freeing counter to the demiurge, a force of creation, beneficence, and spiritual evolution intended to vanquish forces of illusion and malevolence. These themes reemerge in modern conspiracist culture. And that's what I wanted to talk about, because you make this point, and it's, it's very valid, that all traditions, I think, have beneficial, maybe not so beneficial aspects to them, different mm -hmm. interpretations, right? And this idea of the conspiracy, because we seem to be, you know, maybe this is just, you know, Gnostic culture, but there is a lot of conspiracy, a lot of conspiratorial thinking that seems to... You know, it thinks that there's gnosis, but often there's no gnosis. Yeah. It seems yeah. like it's just a switching from one worldview to another. And right. so I was curious if we could talk a little bit about this. And conspiracy has been with us for a long time, but conspiracy in terms of, you know, occultism and also new age. Conspiracism, which I define as a habitual thought style of suspicion mm -hmm. of there being this us versus them dichotomy going on, and me, the observer, the us, is always the good guy, mysteriously, and them is you know, shadowy influences, archons, call them what you will, uh, a lot of terms used from history, Illuminati, and so on and so forth, which I write about extensively in the book. There is this bad overclass that's blinding us to actuality. I have a real problem with that way of thinking because it cements us permanently into a kind of us versus them mentality. Diverts me from looking in the mirror, diverts me from looking at my relationships, diverts me from looking at whether or not I keep my word, I am planted firmly and certainly as one of the good guys, the forces of good, as we always are in these paranoid us versus them struggles. Now, I may have to accept that in the same way that Gnosticism informs the Barbie movie, which I like, <laughs> it also informs conspiracist culture, which I profess to dislike. But it may be just the name of the game that, 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 we being a kind of Gnostic culture in a way at the moment, have that too as part of the, as one of the spokes in the wheel. 
Now, <clears throat> people have maintained to me that I am too obstinate and too rejecting of conspiracism in a blanket way. Mm -hmm. And I, re I recognize that criticism. I feel very strongly about it and I feel very emotionally about it because I know where a lot of conspiracism winds up at the end of the day. And we've seen how this movie ends and it's not pretty. And uh, we've seen who the victims are when conspiracism finds a physical target and it's usually the most helpless among us. And this has been true throughout history, whoever it is, whether it's gays or handicapped or accused witches or Jews or, you know, you name whatever group has been targeted for long stretches of time in waves of paranoia over history. And it's not too hard to figure out the ending of this particular movie. So my emotions aside, I don't want to get into this position where I'm painting with a broad brush when a liner brush is needed. Is every conspiracy wrong? No. Uh, I, you know, I, I think everybody feels like we don't know everything that we ought to know about the Kennedy assassination. I don't know anybody who walks around saying the Warren Commission did a great job and just sit down and shut up. You know, I don't know anybody who feels that way across our whole culture. But at the same time, that impulse to disbelieve everything and to rely upon supposition to do it is insufficient to me. One of the things that I issue to the conspiracy um, community is that my tools are the tools of a historian. Like it or not, that's what I do. I believe very strongly in the sourcing model, not in supposition, however commonsensical it may seem to be. If you want to show me symbols and say these symbols point to something, that's a supposition. I need historical fact that I can stand on as foundationally as you can demonstrate any quotidian event that's ever occurred in history. That's my way. That doesn't have to be everybody's way. But that's my way. So I have limits intellectually in my willingness to sustain supposition, however well argued it may be. So I suppose that in a nutshell is where I stand with regard to conspiracism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about this because there's this term that I first heard, I think maybe about two years ago of conspirituality. And mm -hmm. there's this really interesting merging of conspiratorial thinking and politics and in particular, yep. the new age. And, yep. and that was actually one of the things where I'm like, okay, I need to ask Mitch about this because at one point I'm trying to find your direct quote here. I think I may have even put it somewhere else, but you had written, and I don't want to misquote you here that you didn't see like politics happening now in the esoteric. And when I read that, I'm like, but what about this conspirituality? Mm, um, because yeah. it seemed to be counter to that. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think I was probably referencing people at, at upper echelons of power drinking from the waters of esoteric or occult right. literature. I detect very little of that with an exception here and there, which I write about in the book. But your point is very, very well taken that there has been a convergence, 
between aspects of the new age, particularly those aspects that are very focused on wellness, sometimes on uh, the ET thesis or the UFO thesis and conspiratorial thought, honing in, I guess, crystallizing around this idea that the bad guys are withholding UFO information and they could defend that point of view. And there is some there are histories of failures of disclosure or attempts to smear researchers, we'll say, within UFO um, history. So that can be engaged. Uh, and then within the wellness movement saying the bad guys may be engaged in a pandemic or want us to take this vaccine that's going to do nefarious things and so forth, which is a way of thought that I break from. And... And so you have this nexus of a, a wish to flesh out the UFO thesis, a wish to pursue alternative roads in, in wellness, fed by some very real social factors, like the fact that health insurance carriers are the massive, I would I call it organized crime with a refrigerator magnet. I mean, that's, right. you know, yeah. I've never found any reason to part from that uh, rather glib <laughs> homily. But these social factors drive people to a place of very deep suspicion combined with ideals of, of wellness and disclosure that are important within the New Age community. And it can get to a place of a very hardened politics. And you will see the emergence of some figures who occupy this nexus of uh, what would you conspiracy conspirituality is that yeah, the term? Conspirituality, yeah. yeah it's a worthwhile term i mean it's a kind of marriage of new age spirituality conspiracism wellness conspiracism i do want to sound a note of caution and sound this note especially to um people in the journalistic world that it's easy to also overestimate the extent to which that is occurring it's yeah. there and 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 I, I see it upfront and personal. And there are new age venues, for example, where my um, presence is not welcome or is welcome only to a limited extent because of that issue. And it's very real and I experience it. It's right up in my face. It's not the majority by any stretch. It's a fraction of people. Right. A vocal faction, a growing faction, a faction that's kind of on the move but a minority faction, and I don't want it to be overestimated. There's too many articles in the mainstream press right now about how the wellness movement is going to kill all of us. You know, right, I, right, I think right. it's a, a wild overestimation, um, but the problem is there and it's very real. And that is one area. And, and again, I, I, it might be on my shoulders to say, well, you know, I'm the guy who thinks it's so great that we're rediscovering Gnosticism as a culture. This may be an outgrowth of that, that I don't like so much. So along these lines, though, uh, and I agree with everything you just said, that we have to be very careful about that because, you know, the media loves to overgeneralize. Yeah. Uh, and, and so do we as individuals, I think, often. Uh, but one of the things that I found really interesting is that throughout the book, there were instances of a cult and a cult movements being connected to politics in a very beneficial way mm -hmm. so for example you mentioned and you know i don't think anyone would consider this necessarily a cult but you talk about the early shakers 
and yeah. Jemima Wilkinson. And you wrote that, you know, this opened Americans to the validity of intentional communities and women as religious leaders. You talked about Prince Hall, Prince Hall Masonry, who was, you know, a freed man of color who mm. led the first black led abolitionist movement. Yeah. Uh, and I think spiritualism as well was very mm. positive for women and, you know, trying to get the right to vote and whatnot. Yeah. And so I'm curious you know, I know that there were other religions and religious aspects that fed into these things, but I'm wondering if you see, you know, what are the beneficial uh, uh, movements now in terms of occultism uh, getting us into um, a better world? I'll put it that way. Well, it seems to me that when people find new avenues for self-expression, that very often opens up cultural vistas that were previously closed. So, for example, when the spiritualist movement starts to spread across America in the mid-19th century, suddenly um, there's a demand for mediums who can preside over activities at seance tables. And it so happens a lot of these mediums are women. And as spiritualism uh, forms into a, a civic and cultural and, and religious movement, women are at the helm of it. And we're seeing a female religious leadership in our country for the very, very first time, organized with clubs and newsletters and events and lecture societies. And next thing you know, in the early seven, 1870s, a medium, Victoria Woodhull, is running a protest campaign for president and so forth. And central New York State, the Burned Over District, is home to the Seneca Falls Conference for Women's Rights. 40 miles down the road from the log cabin where Kate and Margaret Fox say, hey, we're talking to the spirits from the other world. It, these things come in waves. So it's hard to see, it's hard to know, to predict, to put one's finger on, well, what will come out of this mini occult renaissance that we're having today? Listen, stuff might come out of it that I may or may not like. We always assume that the, the outgrowth of movements that we're deeply interested in is somehow going to be 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 enriching of my personal happiness well it might not uh, again you know, this perfect example with barbie and narcissism i'm watching that and i'm like hey it's a gnostic movie and it's like well sure enough and that's popular and that's interesting and that's personally moving to me but the conspiratorial movement as well could justifiably be linked to this Gnostic mood that runs through our culture. Maybe I don't like that so much, or I'm worried about it, what have you. So it's difficult to say exactly what will emerge. Certainly, occultism as a Western expression has, to a very, very great extent, opened up doors for self-expression that later emerged in, in, in terms of social openings. My presumption is that that is going to continue in some way, but I don't. I don't know that it could continue in ways that that make me feel threatened, or that I don't like, or that make me uncomfortable. That's the wild ride of dealing with ideas. They're not necessarily going to go into all these places uh, that I groove to. What I hope. What I hope is that, for example, the findings of parapsychology might give people a greater sense of possibility in their own lives. What I hope is that the popularity and the the public-facing inquiry into UFOs uh, might serve to induce a greater discussion around parapsychology, questions of interdimensionality, some of the perceptual ideas that 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 have been rendered more popular by 
the publication, the publicizing of findings in quantum mechanics. My hope is that 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 we come out of this era with a, a little bit of a broader idea of what it means to be human. Whether my hope will 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 come to pass, I, I have no idea. You know, something yeah. much worse than unforeseen may come to pass. You know, that's the dice roll when you're dealing with ideas, right. but that's certainly my wish. Okay, wonderful. So I, I know that I've taken up a lot of your time, but if you don't mind, I do have one or two more questions for you. Sure. So along these lines, one of the things that you wrote, and this kind of takes us back to the first question I asked about the distinction between the occult and the new age or, you know, the relationship, but this is something that I really liked. And I wanted to ask you to comment on this. And there's a reason why I wanted to ask you to comment on this, but you wrote, and this is towards the back of the book that Prometheus rules the occult Gaia rules the new age. <laughs> and I found that really provocative. And I was, I wanted to ask you to maybe discuss that a little bit, but also one of my prime concerns is always the many environmental crises that we are facing right now. And I'm hoping that Gaia can be part of the occult as well. Well, it's a good question and it's a good formulation. I, I said Prometheus rules the occult in the sense that Prometheus is the quest for power, agency, self-remaking, a protean self. Mm. And I think that's why I'm so attracted to the occult. Gaia is a, a sort of holistic earth goddess interconnectedness that rules the new age, although all these things have different iterations to them. And I think that one of the ways Gaia is expressed in the new age is a, a kind of perfuming of human motive, a commitment to um, service in a very self-aggrandizing, sometimes self-deceiving way. I also see within the, the New Age a kind of moralism that recreates a certain Christendom moralism that can be very limiting conceptually and, and in terms of the Promethean efforts to explore self. Certainly there are many movements within the New Age, Wicca, witchcraft, Druidism, that are very environmentally sensitive and aware. It's not an area, I have to admit, where I'm very strong. I have a weakness in that area. I don't know why. It may be politically and socially living as I do here in the borough of Brooklyn. I just haven't paid correct and sufficient attention yet to the depth of our, of our crisis. But I am very aware of and very sympathetic towards those movements that are radically environmentally based that, that function on the occult uh, side of the spectrum that side of the spectrum ruled by Prometheus. Yeah. So maybe there needs to be a Gaian and Promethean wedding of some sort. Yeah. And that may come out of the present moment. That may come out of the present moment. It yeah. certainly doesn't come if we close our doors. It certainly sure. doesn't come if we say, you know, new agers are all, you know, woo-woo and fuzzy headed and occultists are all, you know, power mad megalomaniacs. And yeah. you no, know, I mean, we, we have to open our doors. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a question that I'm personally trying to investigate, trying to figure out, well, where is the connections and the things that I've kind of come to, if I might share is, well, one is 
the idea going back to the uh, old ideas of the hermeticists of noose, you know, the Greek idea of noose and yeah. mind and spirit, if and things being an emanation of that, then that means mind and spirit is throughout the entire world. And I think that opens up one possibility of creating a different relationship. Um, I agree. I also saw, and I was looking for the uh, quote from your text and I couldn't quite find it. So instead of shuffling papers, there was something where you seem to write that one of the things that happens is this dismantling of the dualisms, because you've kind of mentioned that before in, in our conversation of, you know, like self and other and good and bad, you know, and whatnot. And it seems to me that that also can help us in terms of demolishing some of these distinctions, you know, like culture yeah. nature. But I would also ask, you know, with the Prometheus, you know, isn't Prometheus the rebel? And that's kind of oh, what absolutely. we need right now are rebels. <laughs> the rebel. I interpret that more on personal terms because, yeah. and this may have come through, at the back of some of my statements, I'm distrusting of politics. Yeah. I, I, I think when human communities get overly invested in politics, usually catastrophes occur. Yeah. I, I'm very distrusting of human nature, especially on a mob level. I'm very distrusting of politics. I like <laughs> the Constitution. I don't mean that in a yeah. glib way. I'm just trying right. to be plain. I like the Constitution. I think it was a brilliantly conceived document, one of the greatest human documents that's ever been written. And I think that that finding governance within that document is incredible and wonderful and has been to the good of many, many people in an unfolding and evolutionary way. Obviously, it was incomplete at its conception and the rights intrinsic in it came to be more and more expansive as is necessary. And it's an extraordinary document. I don't like politics especially when politics are on the march mm. i want a passive i want a more passive politics in our yeah. country i i like the idea of the gray-faced technocrat remaining in his or her place <laughs> yeah. I, I i i my ideal political situation is walter mondale you know if anybody <laughs> remembers him or Michael Dukakis, who's still living one of my kids uh, i don't know how this stuff happens one of my kids and his cousin knocked on Dukakis's door in Brookline, Massachusetts recently, and he came to the door and he was very nice. And I spoke with them because they just wanted to meet him. And uh, you got to hand it to a guy who just answers his own front door. Anyway, I like that kind of inoffensive, technocratic, passive politics. I like things that abet stability, but also abet justice for the working person. I, I, I want to see strong, <clears throat> excuse me, consumer protection laws. I want to see uh, working people aptly and properly rewarded for their works, uh, with their work. So, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the organized labor movement. I'd like to see in the United States a kind of mix between us and Canada. Canada has too many rules and too much conformity. And it's a, it's a problem in that society. But there are a lot of things that they do right that we could do better. And and that's my that's my outlook. I, I'm very distrusting of politics. I, because I, I'm very distrusting of human nature. I'm very distrusting of human movements. I love the individual search. I want to see the individual search protected. I think that's enormously important. And that to me is where the protein quality comes in. That to me is where I love Fayara Ben's 
statement about being an anarchist of the psyche, an anarchist of thought, an anarchist of intellect. And these things can have radical outpicturings uh, in the outer world. I love and I take great joy in seeing the individual remaking him or herself in whatever way. And people do do it. And we do have examples. And I, I hope, I hope within my own existence, I've provided a reasonably serviceable example of of a kind of i hope ethically grounded protean approach i have two children i have a partner my my success can be measured in their lives to some great extent so that's that's where the protean fire burns for me in terms of politics i would like it to be boring yeah Yeah. Yeah. I would like it to be less in our face than it is now. But, you know, I'll say as you were speaking, the what came to mind is, you know, I think your approach in many ways is very American in the sense of, you know, going back to, you know, people like, you know, Emerson and, you know, the self-made person and whatnot and that individualism. And mm-hmm. what I was thinking of was Alexis de Tocqueville, who was touring America during the Second Great Awakening. And one of the ideas that he focused on was that when he was interviewing Americans, that they were always talking about self-interest properly understood. And mm-hmm. so it was, yeah, there was that focus on the self, but also that the self in relation to the other community, to the greater community. Yes. And and life is relationships and I have obligations to other yeah. people. Right. I think some of us have too many obligations. I think sure. in general, we have too many friendships. We have too many relationships, whatever it is that we are on social media. There's too much of it. There's too many of us. There's yeah. it's, it's awful. Uh, I left Facebook. I hated the idea of using the term friend. To identify 5,000 people who you know, I was told could populate my page if I so deemed. And I I think that we're not built, we as human beings are not built for this many relationships. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it runs riot over social media. I think most of us have too many relationships, many of whom are burdens, many of which are burdensome, many of which we complain about incessantly, and we don't do anything about it. And I, I think that narrowing one's relationships is actually a great ethical act. And, and it helps the individual then fulfill the needs of those people in his or her life who are really owed something. Children, partners, close coworkers, that's it. I, I don't see why, I, 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 and obviously I owe something to the world. I hope I'm a plain dealer. I, I, I honor the sanctity of contract, a phrase that Ayn Rand used. I believe very deeply that 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 commerce, if it's not conducted along ethical lines, should be subject to laws that make sure uh, that that there's 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 proper enforcement and that the individual is not is not ripped off. We don't have enough of that in our country today. There's a crying need for it, but we can't do it because we're all complaining about things that actually have no impact on the individual's life 99% of the time. So we can't control pharmaceutical prices, which are in need of price controls. They do it in Canada. Things are, you know, perfectly functional there. We could do it here, but culturally, uh, things interrupt that. Anyway, all of this is just to say that I think that 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 ethics, honor, nobility—they matter enormously. But they can't matter in the, if if we render them in the abstract, and they have to matter first in terms of the intimacy of our relationships. And most of us have too many of them yeah. to really exercise those traits. Yeah, yeah, we kind of prefer quantity over quality. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And if I remember right, in our last conversation, your focus on the ethical was on reciprocity. Um, and, that's uh, that's my that's my outlook. Best as we can 
lay our hands around it. There's yeah. very often times where we can't lay our hands around it. But I do think the idea of making a payment for something is very important. Yeah. I do think the idea of not complaining uh, is very important. And I do think the idea of being able to use resources to support other people who are close to us, hence the importance of a small circle, is important. Yeah. Well, I think that you know you have made a significant contribution in the sense that with a lot, you know, most of your works focusing on the individual, there is the encouragement of that we have power, that we mm -hmm. can change and shape and transform our lives. And I think that is essentially crucial. I think that is essentially crucial, you know. So. And I think we have more power in that area than we give ourselves. Of course, yeah. there are catastrophes, there are extreme countervailing measures that must be taken into account as well. We as a human community experience many different laws and forces, some of them so overwhelming that there's literally nothing that the individual can do. But that's not always the case. And if we are in a circumstance that we're not facing these overwhelming countervailing measures, which certainly do exist, um, I believe firmly that we have more power than we give ourselves credit for. And my hope is that what comes out of the project of occult and esoteric and parapsychological exploration is a, a greater estimation of that power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're certainly uh, something of a role model for me or, you know, that <laughs> like, yes, yes, someone's doing the good work. So I appreciate that very, very Thank much. You. Uh, so, you know, I know your time's valuable. So let me ask you one final question. What's, what are you working on next? Well, I'm writing a new book right now called Happy Warriors. It's about okay. the lives and ideas of the founders of the positive mind movement, okay. uh, many of whom were more extraordinary and complex people than history has given us to understand. And so it's structured around biographical essays of people ranging from Neville Goddard to Napoleon Hill to Joseph Murphy to Florence Scovel Shin, who were some of the brightest and most influential voices in the, the positive mind movement. So Happy Warriors is going to come out in 2024. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, again, I thoroughly enjoyed your new book, Modern Occultism, and highly recommend it. it you know, very well written as always, uh, and you. very engaging and an important history, I think, that a lot of people may not be aware of. So thank you, um, thank you so much for your time. It was a joy speaking with you again, and I hope that sometime we can speak again. Absolutely. Back at you. And as with our previous exchange, really enjoyed this one. Thank you for your preparation, your thoughtfulness. It makes a real difference. Thank you. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 109 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support me in my mission of exploring spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's relationship to a living earth, then please consider signing up for my Patreon. You can find the link for my Patreon in the show notes or video description. Or if you'd prefer, you can still make a one-time donation via PayPal. Uh, the link for that will also be in the show notes and video description. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it on social media, share it with friends, family members, coworkers. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. 
So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit. <laughs>